1: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
2: It's quite weird, isn't it? Because I can't understand why English people would adopt the American style, which is absolutely the more encumbering, weirder Less efficient way of doing it.
0: That's Tim Dowling. He's a columnist for The Guardian newspaper. And the weird thing he's talking about is some important news about how the Brits handle their cutlery. I know you're on the edge of your
3: seat. We have more on that coming up. But first, you're listening to Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food
0: through the lens of science and history. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I'm Nicola Twilley. And this is our last episode of the year. So we decided to revisit some of our favorite stories and people so far to see what's new. We have updates about forks and microbes and cheese and more, plus lots of stories from you, our lovely listeners. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Mazetta. Mazetta is a fourth-generation, family-owned and operated company offering an assortment of Mediterranean foods, from hand-stuffed olives to hand-picked capers. This holiday season, Mazetta wants to help you create, capture, and share your holiday memories. Enter for a chance to win a Holiday Memories sharing pack including an instant print digital camera, new Mazetta appetizer olives and more. Enter for a chance to win at mazetta.com/gastro. Our very first episode ever was about
3: the science and history of what you eat with. Forks, knives, spoons. I never knew that being called a fork eater used to be an insult. I also learned from Zoe Laughlin at London's Institute of Making that the metal my spoon is made of can change how my soup tastes or my sorbet.
4: You know, you've never tasted mango sorbet until you've eaten it off a gold spoon because every other time you've eaten it, you've eaten it off a material that somehow contaminated it. And only now are you truly tasting mango sorbet. That's what it was like.
0: The reason we mention all of this is that we have an important fork-related update for you.
3: You might remember from our episode that Brits use their forks and knives differently than Americans do. Nikki, I was so surprised to hear that your parents are horrified
0: when you come home and they see you've picked up American silverware habits. If only that was the worst thing I've done. But actually, it turns out that I am not alone in making the switch.
2: The findings that were from a survey, which found that uh, up to a third, I think, of young people in Britain are now using their knife and fork in what they call the American way, uh, which is to switch, you know, to cut with your fork in your left hand and then to put the knife down and switch hands and then scoop up your food with the fork in the right hand, which is not the European or continental way where everybody keeps their fork in their left hand and their knife in their right hand the whole time.
0: Before my parents start to panic, we should point out that older generations have not forgotten their manners – 90% 90% of the over-30s still use the European style of left-handed fork-holding. But there are some regional variations. Half of all Welsh people of any age have adopted cut and switch, whereas only 6% of people in the southwest have. It's very odd. There's another thing about this story that's a little odd.
3: Tim Dowling's accent. He's American, can you tell? Or are you, dear listener, confused by his accent the way so many of you seem to be confused by Nikki's? <laughs> he's American, but he's lived in the UK for more than two decades. And so, like Nicky, his accent lands
0: him on some remote island in the Mid-Atlantic. It's not our fault. But it turns out Tim's fork technique is equally ambiguous. Yeah,
2: I did grow up with cut and switch, but I was slightly exempt from it because uh, even more than American, I'm, I'm left-handed. So I, I, couldn't, I couldn't be made to do it the right way. And I was sort of excused from being forced to, whereas I think my brothers and sisters uh, had to learn cut and switch.
0: So Cynthia, my theory when I read Tim's column about this change in British fork habits was that it was all part of the increasing Americanization of everything. We have Black Friday in the but UK now. But that doesn't now. make any sense. You don't have Thanksgiving. Doesn't matter. We have Halloween. We have Whole Foods. NFL football. But that's not what Tim thinks. I mean, he didn't teach his own children this American style.
2: No, I can't imagine teaching anyone anything as painful as cut and switch. Having to learn that—it's extraordinary. I mean, I, after you teach a child how to hold a spoon the right way, I think oh, you sort of give up these days, don't you? That's all they need to know. And I think that's the secret to this, this notion of, of British people switching. I think what we're really talking about is the decline of the knife. I think that people now eat sort of food, ready meals and street food and, and fast food that you don't use a knife for. So when they've only got a fork in their hand, they, why would you not put it in your dominant hand? It just makes sense. So right-handed people put the fork in their right hand. And when they come to use a knife, they would have no idea how to use a knife.
0: You know, I actually think that's worse. It's not that we've become Americanized. It's that we don't even know how to eat anymore. <laughs> and on that happy note, time to get back to our favorite topic on Gastropod. Microbes. You guys know we can hardly go an episode without mentioning them. Do you all remember our trip to
3: Colombia? I went out in the field with Ali Rodriguez and Ian Sanders to learn how different breeds of mycorrhizal fungi in the soil can help cassava. You're hearing some students slash at the roots of the cassava plants to harvest them at the end of one of the research cycles. Using the fungi that Ian had bred in his lab, the cassava were able to grow dramatically bigger. And when I say dramatically, I mean they could get five times more food using some species of these microbes in the soil.
0: So this is actually kind of amazing because you're talking about better results than you can even get with fertilizer. And fertilizer costs money that poor farmers don't have, and it runs off of the fields as pollution kills fish. So finding a way to breed and harness the fungi that normally live on a cassava root to help those cassava grow better, it's kind of like a dream, except it turned out to be true.
2: If a fungus made... Cassava grow particularly well in the first year of the experiment. It also made cassava grow very well in the second year, the second experiment.
5: It's very, very interesting, very exciting for us because we can see that it's a, it's a real effect. They are very consistent results. So it's a very, very happy news for us. That was
3: more than a year ago. Now, to be honest, a year isn't much in agricultural research. It takes a long time to do these studies but we wanted to hear what's new with them, so we called them up.
5: We have really good news because, as you know, we have been uh, interested to take our research to other places in the world, particularly to Africa, where cassava is a very important crop. And so the news is that we've been uh, awarded a project funded by the Swiss National Science Foundation to precisely take the technology to uh, Africa. Initially, we will start working in Kenya and Tanzania. The idea is to start with the experiments in the fields in April next year. The fungi
0: are spreading. But that's not Ian and Alia's only good news. Part of why this research moves so slowly is that there isn't that much funding for research into these kinds of crops in poor countries, the kind of crops people grow to feed themselves and their families. Big companies want to invest in the money makers, things like rice and wheat that are grown as commodities. But Ian says that's starting to change, at least for cassava.
2: I think it's a, it's a very good thing that this crop is you know, finally moving away from being considered as the the poor person's crop and the poor person's food. And as soon as that's the case, you know, it makes it much more easy to actually persuade companies to to take your technology further and actually put it onto the market where people would use it.
3: That's great
0: news. I hope their research in Africa progresses smoothly. Like no floods this time, you mean Exactly. We'll keep you posted. But we can't stop there. We have more microbes to talk about, and these are delicious
6: ones. So I'm just going to open this
0: up. We visited microbiologist Ben Wolf at his lab
3: at Tufts. He brought what he called his absolutely favorite cheese. It's Harbison, made by the Sellers at Jasper Hill. It looked a little bit like a large wheel of brie, with the harder white outside and creamier inside. But this Harbison is even creamier than a brie. Ben called it spoonable. He opened the packaging and laid it out for us.
6: And immediately, you should be able to smell the microbial impact on this particular cheese. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Cooked cabbage. Mm. Maybe a little bit like farts, but good farts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right? It's That's a, a sentence
3: it's, I've never heard. Right?
6: And so...
0: I'm using that from now on. <laughs> it's a good fart. <laughs> it's, think of it as a good fart. <laughs>
6: so the best way to eat this cheese is to slice off the top...
0: Oh. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) Wow. So, yeah, dig in.
6: Oh, my God.
0: Spoonable cheese is just, I mean, that's two (laughs) words that should go together, isn't it? I love it. Hmm? Hmm. (laughs)
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Cynthia and I transcribed that bit of tape all I wrote was sound of cheese orgasm fairly
3: accurate description but of course there is science to this deliciousness when we first met Ben we spoke to him not surprisingly for our cheese episode
6: so the last time we chatted we talked a lot about the work we're doing with cheese rinds and the microbial communities that live on cheese rinds and how we're using them as tools to understand how microbes work but at the same time helping out cheese makers learn more about the quality of their products.
0: With Ben, a cheese tasting is never only about the cheese orgasm. It's also about the microbes.
6: Wow, it's really becoming much more aromatic now that it's opened. When we cut the surface off, you can actually get much more of that cooked cabbage flavor. A lot of that is coming from a particular bacterium called hafnia alvei. It produces sulfur compounds that are very similar to things you'd find in cooked cabbage. You definitely get the cooked cabbage. It's not aggressive. It's a subtle sort of cooked cabbage. You get a little bit of the spruciness from the bark. And there's also some meatiness there. There's definitely sort of an umami meatiness. Oh, yeah. And that's coming from another set of microbes, uh, which people are very surprised is in cheese, staph. Like Staphylococcus. So if you've ever eaten salami, if you've ever eaten cheese, you've eaten staph. Delicious, not deadly staph.
0: After giving us a snack, Ben took us back into the lab to show us what he's up to now. But before we bring you up to speed on that, we want to tell you about this episode's sponsors. Texture is the app that gives you an all-access pass to the world's best magazines right on your phone or tablet. Browse hundreds of magazines and cherry-pick the articles that interest you most. The Texture editorial team makes personalized story recommendations daily, plus their curated collections let you dive deeper into topics. It is a far cry from the first apps. Which were? Games. Bad games. Like Snake, remember that? It launched in 1997, and the graphics consisted entirely of black squares. Snake belongs in a museum. Literally, it's on MoMA's acquisition list. But Texture belongs in your future. The best part, Texture is offering Gastropod listeners
3: a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash gastropod. You'll gain unrestricted access to the world's best magazines from back issues to the ones on newsstands today. Or give Texture as a gift between now and December 31st. With full access to the top magazines for just about every interest, Texture is the one present they'll open again and again. Try Texture for free right now when you go to texture.com slash gastropod.
0: Or give it as a gift to you or a loved one before December 31st. Just go to texture.com gastropod.
3: We're also sponsored this week by Parachute, an online bedding brand based in Venice Beach, California. They have a whole line of super soft, simple, everyday bedding essentials from sheets to comforters.
0: Just select the items you want on their easy-to-use website and then get them delivered directly to your front door. What's more, they offer free shipping, free returns, and a 30-night risk-free guarantee.
3: Once you have your lovely Parachute sheets, you
0: won't want to get out of bed. Ever again,
3: which is probably why Parachute has a regular feature on their blog called Breakfast in Bed. For this episode, we looked into the history of Breakfast in Bed, and as always, Emily Post has the answer. Here's what she had to say about English country house breakfast habits in 1922. Communities of people who have lived or traveled much abroad have nearly all adopted the continental breakfast habit of a tray in their room, especially on Sunday mornings. Most people who breakfast in bed take only coffee or tea, an egg, toast, and possibly fruit. How frightfully refined.
0: Choose your bedding online at parachutehomecom gastropod and receive $25 off your first order by using the code gastropod. That's parachutehome.com slash gastropod and enter gastropod for $25 off at checkout to start sleeping better today.
3: I personally would want cheese if I were to be eating in bed. But we visited Ben not just to taste delicious cheese,
0: but to talk science.
6: So what I'll talk about first is our mutant mold project. And one thing that uh, is a really interesting part of the history of cheese making, especially for camembert, is that camembert used to be this color. So that beautiful cheese that we just ate which was white and pure looking, it used to be this greenish blue monster (laughs) that if you gave that to someone today, especially an American, they would totally turn that away.
0: You heard that right. The rind on camembert used to be blue, greenish blue to be precise. Like the wheel of cheese would be this bluish minty green rather than white. This was before pasteurization.
6: And one question that we're trying to understand is how did we end up with a white mutant. That is the mold that people use now in cheese making. And uh, what we found over the summer is in a very simple experiment where we started off with one of these invasive blue molds, it's a very close relative to the thing that we now use to make camembert. If you slowly grow that over time in a simulated cheese making environment, it rapidly loses its color and looks like the thing that we have today in cheese making. So in just a couple of weeks, we went from this greenish-blue to this white, which looks almost like the thing we were just eating. These are the exact same strain. They're the exact same species. But what's happened is this mold has let go of its colors. It's just stopped making those colors.
3: Ben's studying why the camembert mold lost its blue. What does the color of the mold mean?
6: What's really interesting is it doesn't happen if you have neighboring microbes present. So this is an experiment that we did. We just had the mold growing by itself. So you can imagine that when you're growing in cheese, it's this very lush, rich environment. And if you're growing by yourself, you don't have anything to compete with. It's just this really wonderful place. So you can kind of let go of things. You can kind of relax and say, you know what? I don't need to fight with anybody. I can just evolve and do whatever I want to do.
0: So when the mold doesn't have to fight, it's white. And when it's competing with other microbes, it's blue.
6: And so what we think is happening is that these colors, these pigments, are actually defense compounds. Just like plants and animals have defense compounds. These play important roles with dealing with the stress that your neighbors might produce.
0: So the color of camembert is unstressed. That's what it's like. It's like a mood cheese.
6: Exactly. It's a very sort of happy, luxuriant environment that that mold can grow in. We wouldn't get that out in nature because these molds are constantly fighting with other microbes to survive, so they keep their colors. That's number one. Uh, And then another really cool thing, and this is the thing I didn't really want to talk about last time, but we're getting closer, so I'm happy to talk about it, is um, fungal superhighways on cheese. Yeah. So... Way back uh, when we were taking pictures of various plates, petri dishes, of microbes from cheese, we discovered this interesting pattern where it looked like a bacterium was cruising along the fuzzy networks of a mold, essentially using it like a highway to get around. So bacteria generally can't spread as well as things like molds because they just can't move across the surface as well as a, a fuzzy mold can.
0: So Ben wondered, maybe the bacteria could just hitch a ride on a mold.
6: And what we found is that's in fact what's happening. And so what I have here is a really cool example of what the interaction looks like. So you can see on this plate... He first
3: points out the bacteria.
6: And then this is what the mold looks like. So this is the two things separately. And when they get together... This is what happens.
3: When the bacteria and the mold are grown separately, they're just these two little blobs. But when the two are grown together, suddenly it's this beautiful flower that spreads out across the Petri
0: dish. It covers five or six times more of the dish than it ever could have on its own.
6: So you can imagine if this was a cheese, this bacterium is using the fungus as a friend to spread around and... and and sort of colonize the cheese surface which is amazing uh, and so what we're trying to do is better understand that process what is the fungus getting out of it how is the bacterium recognize the fungus um there's so many cool things that we're going to be able to do with this um One of the sort of downsides of this is we've also found that some pathogens can use these fungal superhighways.
3: Because this is great if you're a happy cheese bacterium that uses mold to help turn more milk into cheese. It's not so great if you're listeria. Well, it's still great for you.
0: It's just not great for us.
6: Listeria, for example, can spread around on these fungal superhighways. So we're a little bit concerned about how that could play a role in listeria invading cheeses. And trying to understand all that, again, will help with the the cheese quality and cheese safety. And then I'll just show you, these are, this is a, <laughs> our newest venture is sauerkraut. Um, so this is in vitro sauerkraut.
3: They're studying how the microbes on cabbage from any particular farm end up affecting the microbes in the finished sauerkraut. And then they've also got a new experiment going looking at kombucha. That's a drink made from sweet tea that's been fermented by this mushroomy blob of microbes and yeast. Ben wants to know what's happening in the blob.
6: Um, so that's another thing we're trying to figure out, what kind of relationships actually happening inside of your, inside of your kombucha science of kombucha we're totally doing this later we're coming
0: back we're coming back for kombucha yep um i'll come back for sour i'll come (laughs) back yeah yeah oh yeah i'm with you anytime yeah absolutely we will absolutely be coming back to ben's lab especially if he keeps feeding us delicious cheeses.
3: in fact soon you listeners will be able to taste cheese with Ben and learn all about the tiny creatures that make it so great live we're super super excited to announce our first live show it's in May 2016 May 4th to be exact at the Boston Museum
0: of Science it's going to be awesome it's going to be free there are going to be delicious samples and we will be sure to email you all when the event listing goes live you can sign up for our email list at gastropod.com we'll be tasting and investigating a number of different
3: delicious topics. And
0: for our grand finale... Cynthia promises to eat cilantro live on stage. (laughs) Nice
3: try. I will never do that again. I already made that sacrifice for Gastropod once. And you all had some interesting comments to share about that episode. Many of you had your own cilantro conversion experiences. It does seem to be possible. In fact, listener Deb Williams had this story she sent us.
7: Hey, Cynthia and Nikki. This is Deb calling in from Maine. I'm a huge fan of Gastropod. I just wanted to share an anecdote of my own cilantro slash coriander conversion. I was a big hater. If even the smallest bit of coriander got into my food, it would ruin the entire thing with that horrible soapy flavor. My mom and my sister felt and still feel the same way. Then I moved to Sweden. One thing I missed dearly was good Mexican food, so I started making my own but I still felt like the flavors weren't authentic enough. So I ended up buying a whole coriander plant one day, and I gingerly used the smallest amount, chopped up very finely, and added it to a large bowl of tomatoes, onions, jalapeno, and lime to make pico de gallo. And it didn't completely ruin my meal somehow. So every time I made Mexican food, I'd add just a little bit more of cilantro to my pico de gallo, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. And now, five years later, I am a cilantro convert. So thanks to being in a desperate situation that is missing food in a foreign country and wanting something that reminded me of home, even if it was that soapy flavor, I can eat cilantro. I don't love it like all those crazy cilantro lovers, but I don't avoid it at all costs either. And now that I live back in the USA again, I can handle all the cilantro everywhere.
0: I told you you didn't try hard enough. Maybe I
3: didn't take small enough tastes for long enough. I mean, it took her five years. We'll
0: check back on Cynthia's progress in 2020. And now for something completely different. When I was in Mexico City, drinking mezcal with Ruth Reichel and Enrique Olvera and various other food superheroes, I also heard this crazy mushroom anecdote from a biologist called Robin Hudson. I think we were among the first to use GPS technology
4: to track indigenous Mexican mushroom searches really in real time, in real life, and be able to compare the
3: performance of men and women. We thought this was fascinating, but we just didn't have time to include it in our mushroom episode. But now we can. We did this over a couple of years
4: got a lot of data. We we followed men, we followed women in pairs as they were searching. Basically what we found, and it supported a lot of anthropological data and theory, that the sexes were different, men were different from women. And you will never guess how. The men tended to go longer distances, higher altitudes, taking risks, going for the big-time, expensive, hard-to-get mushrooms, trophies. The women went meticulously, carefully on the lower slopes, collecting lots of small mushrooms
3: meticulously. But what we really want to know is which gender was better at mushroom foraging? Depends how you measure it. The women had good
4: loads, good to feed the family, we might say, actually expending less energy, the men got the trophies. They got tended to get the big, expensive ones, but at quite a substantial cost.
3: Basically, it took the men more energy to get their big-ass mushrooms.
0: So there's that. But Robin and her postdoc, Marcus Rossetti, didn't stop there. They were curious whether mushroom hunting would also reveal other differences, like, for example, between ADHD kids and their non-ADHD peers. So they adapted mushroom hunting into a game using fluorescent golf balls.
2: And the kids are just asked to go and collect the balls. They try their best. They go and collect them. We measure them also with GPSs. We measure their paths. And so far, we we found that uh, the ADHD kids have less efficient paths than the school kids. They both take the same time, but the ADHD kids travel further, No, which means that the kids... Actually, the ADHD kids compensate by moving faster.
0: Marcos told me that wasn't what he and Robin expected. But time and time again, they found the ADHD kids would gather all the pretend mushrooms, these fluorescent golf balls, in exactly the same amount of time as the control group of kids. But they had to run around further and faster to do it. So, Nikki, that's interesting, but why does it matter? Well, one of the things Robin works on is developing better diagnostic tests for things like ADHD. And it's hard, she said, to know if the reason kids are doing badly on a task is because they don't like it or because they actually have some kind of learning challenge. I will say the children
4: absolutely love running out with their GPS watch
3: collecting balls. For them, it is a game. So there you have it, from mushroom foraging
0: to better child-friendly ADHD tests. And now to our most recent episode where we talked to Matthew Gavin Frank about the dishes he had chosen to represent each state in the U.S. and why.
3: We asked all of you to write or call with your suggestions for your
0: home states. We
3: got a lot of great answers, including some dishes I'd never heard of. For instance, listener Beck Feldhouse Adams is from Kentucky, and she nominated hot browns and Benedictine sandwiches and bourbon. I'm familiar with. Well, yeah, but the other two? Hot Brown apparently is a sandwich that was invented at the Brown Hotel in 1926 in Louisville. It's open faced with turkey and bacon covered with a cheesy bechamel sauce. Benedictine sandwiches. Benedictine is a dip made of cucumber and cream cheese and green food coloring.
0: I was happy to hear from a Brit who suggested that the north of England was best represented by a Lamb's Heart Lancashire hot pot. So that's a stew. Or by lasagna, which is not English, I know, but we do love it. Served with chips, by which I mean fat French fries. Pure stodge, but you need something to get you through the winter. The California roll was quite controversial. We had a lot of
3: suggestions for alternatives. I'm Aria, I'm from California, and if I'd say the dish from
0: California, I'd say it would be the salad. Not just like any old salad, but some kind of crazy salad with... Nuts and fruits and things that you wouldn't usually find in a
3: salad in any other state. Makes sense if you think about everything that grows there.
0: Kind of channeling Alice Waters. On
3: Facebook, we had a bunch of other suggestions for California. Eric Vance likes Mexican-Vietnamese fusion with an Indian chutney sauce because, he says, diversity is the spice of life in Northern California. Another similar suggestion, Mexican-Korean tacos. Those are pretty popular in L.A. right now.
0: Listeners from a couple of different states claimed a dish of beans, collard greens, and cornbread. Bennett Todd in North Carolina chimed in on our website, and then by phone...
5: Hello, my name is Greg, and I just listened to your podcast, which I love. Anyways, I was listening to it as I was eating dinner, which is what I think is a very typical dinner of my state. Butter beans, collard greens, and cornbread. I'm from Alabama, although I live in Salt Lake, and the thing about cornbread is that my grandma taught me two things growing up. She said, it's really hard to mess with cornbread. You can either burn it, or you can put sugar in it. So my butter, beans, collards, and cornbread comes with the saltiest of cornbreads. No sugar in my house.
3: West Virginia sometimes gets a bad rap. Of course, Matthew was talking about foods of hardship,
0: not what people might eat every day. But still, rat stew? I was excited to hear from a West Virginian with a better suggestion. Shannon Ward-Earl
3: listens to Gastropod while she's cooking. She grew up in West Virginia and says that pepperoni rolls are a guilty pleasure that she used to eat at school lunches, and you could find them in convenience in grocery stores.
0: Hearing all of your voicemails and reading your emails made me hungry.
5: Hello there. My name is Kevin Sweeney. I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio, and after listening to your State's Plates episode, I wanted to call and tell you about Cincinnati-style chili. The word chili is used kind of loosely, um, because it's more of a meat sauce. It's uh, a close cousin to the Detroit Coney Dog sauce, but a little maybe meatier and a little spicier, um, served either over spaghetti with uh, a a giant mountain of the fluffiest shredded cheddar cheese you've ever seen, or on um, hot dog, Also with a mountain of said cheese on it. Very delicious and uh, a little unusual if you're not from Cincinnati and have never heard of it.
0: So many foods I haven't ever tried. I need to work on that in 2016. And with that, it's time to bring 2015 to a close for Gastropod. We deserve a drink. For the Mezcal
3: episode, we did all our reporting and recording either in Mexico or in our home cities in Boston and New York. We told you all about how varied the flavors in Mezcal are, but we never actually got to taste them
0: together. So when we did get together the other week to report a story for next season... It's a great one. You will not want to miss it in January when we come back. So after a hard day of reporting... We took Cynthia's mom, Tama, out for some mezcal, because that is how we roll. She did get to eat some Mexican food, too. It's double distilled, artisanal, organic mezcal from Del
3: Maguey. So that's one of the ones we ordered, and then we also ordered Illegal Joven. And I have two with me from Mexico. I have one Mexican that I brought back and another that was given to me as a gift that I'm hiding, <laughs> I'm hiding on the side.
0: In shampoo bottles. Did you mention the shampoo bottles? Because... How classy you are! Well, I had to bring it on the plane in something smaller than three ounces, so I got shampoo bottles.
3: How else do you transport mezcal across state lines in three ounce containers?
0: The things we do for you, dear listeners. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, though, this one was kind of for us. We have to remember to do the little kisses. Little?
3: <laughs> what? What is a kiss? What is that? You don't. So, do you remember from the episode that one of the um, one of the Mexican chefs who Nikki interviewed said, you have to drink it like little kisses. Oh, that's right, I forgot, (laughs) how how silly of me. My mom had never tried mezcal before, but she was up for it. But you have to also notice the difference among them. Of course, of course I will.
0: Okay, so this is the Del Maguey, it smells like mezcal. It's not very smoky, it's quite fruity. I like it.
3: I like the smell of it, it has a really fresh smell. Smooth, but hot. Okay, so this one is the Illegal foven. It Smells different. It doesn't ha- it doesn't smell quite as sweet, I think. Oh, it's really different. Yeah? Yeah, it's a little more savory.
0: Yeah. I really like it. Okay,
3: so this is a this is a wild agave, so it's a different Oh shit. Oh, no.
0: no, no. After just a couple of sips, Cynthia was already throwing her booze all over the place. She dropped the whole travel shampoo bottle on the floor.
3: It's my favorite, and I dropped it. Oh, no, we have just enough left to try it. Oh, <laughs> my God. I want to know, does this shit get in the program? <laughs> you have to listen you have to find out. So I really, I like this one a lot. It's it's very, um, it has a totally different, you'll see, it's it's also harsh. It's not as smooth as those, but it has a very different flavor.
0: Oh, that's such a different flavor. What is that? I don't even, it's like savory and... Almost like celery or something, it's like...
3: This one has a definite burn, though. It's pretty strong. I think I'm going to stick to my margarita if you don't mind.
0: Thank you guys so much for listening, for supporting us, for spreading the word, and for sharing your thoughts through 2015. It's been a good year, and 2016 is going to be even better. We have some awesome episodes in the works. But we would love to hear from you about what you'd like us to cover in
3: 2016. What are some questions you have that you'd like us to answer? For instance, our cilantro episode came about because a listener wanted to know why certain people hate cilantro and if he could ever change from a hater
0: to a lover. What do you want to know? Is there a particular bit of food history or science that you've always wondered about? Send us a voice memo, leave us a voicemail at 310-876-2427 or drop us a line at contact at gastropod.com. And we'll see what we can do.
3: Thanks also to a sponsor this week, Mazetta. Mazetta harvests its products at the peak of ripeness and only sources from farms dedicated to the company's high quality standards. This holiday season, Mazetta wants to help you create, capture, and share your holiday memories. Enter for a chance to win a holiday memories sharing pack, including an instant print digital camera, new Mazetta appetizer olives, and more. Enter for a chance to win at mazetta.com
0: gastro. We are going to be back in January, January 26th to be precise, with a whole bright, shiny new episode just for you. Meanwhile, happy holidays. And send us those questions. Till next year. Why do you run? Why does anyone?
7: I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it.